So this morning marks the third week in our series on the book of Acts. Ryan, how many more do we have? We have a lot more, so buckle up. And so far, besides the apostles uh, replacing Judas with Matthias, which we saw last week, we have to say, you know, there's not been a lot of action. And what I mean is there's, there's not been any real great uh, advancement or movement among the disciples. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us. The apostles weren't doing anything wrong. They were, they were waiting. And waiting is what Jesus instructed them to do. You will receive power, he told them, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. At the end of his gospel, Luke records Jesus telling the apostles he knew that they could uh, struggle to get things, a little slow learners, and he told them to stay in the city, stay put until you are clothed with power from on high. And so no movement yet, because the Spirit, the promised Spirit, hadn't come. And there's really no reason for us to think that the apostles doubted Jesus would keep his promise you know, rising from the dead kind of, I think, resolved their doubts. It's hard not to believe the person who overcame death. That's not someone who you want to argue with. But I do imagine it was difficult. I do imagine it was difficult for them to grasp how the coming of the Spirit was more of an advantage than being in the physical presence of Christ. Right, but that was Jesus' position in, in John's gospel, in what we know as the upper room discourse. Jesus makes exactly this point, saying, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Right, if you look back at the start of Acts, Luke tells us that over the course of 40 days, Christ presented himself alive to the apostles. And he spoke to them about the, the kingdom of God. And so just think, can you, can you think of a greater advantage right, than meeting personally, face to face with the risen Christ and having him speak to you and teach you about the kingdom? Right? Like, we just got over the holidays. We know what it's like to have company, family. We're kind of, you get to that point, you're ready. You're ready for them to go home. But if the risen Christ was in front of you and with you, you wouldn't want him to leave. Right? Really, how could the next phase be better? Because think about the confidence that you'd have if the resurrected Christ were right next to you. Right? You'd never fear anything. You'd never be afraid of the, of the Romans again. But Jesus doesn't lie. So we believe him. We trust him. His going into heaven and sending the Spirit is an advantage to all of us. Right? And our passage this morning gives us insight. We begin to see the advantages that arrive when the ascended Christ fulfills his promise, and pours out his spirit. And what we want to ultimately see is how that advantage, 
those advantages are not closed off to us. We want to understand how we too can enjoy and receive the advantages and the blessings of living in the age of the Spirit. So this morning, we begin our study on Pentecost. We'll be looking at Pentecost over the next two Sundays, I believe. For this morning, we'll be in chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 13. So when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea? Lost my place. Too many, too many names. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. And so what, maybe in a, in a little bit of an understatement, this is an unusual scene. And those who experienced it firsthand were told were, they were bewildered, they were amazed, they were astonished, they were perplexed. So if that's you, you're in good company. All right, so we need to get our, it's helpful to get our bearings. Right? And verse 1 tells us when this occurred. Right? It occurred at Pentecost. Well, what is Pentecost? Well, it's one of the three great Jewish agricultural feasts. It was celebrated seven weeks in a day, Penta, five or 50, seven weeks in a day after the first fruits of the grain harvest had been offered. It's also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. So it's a celebration of the full harvest, the gathering of the harvest. And what we'll see in a couple weeks is that at the end of this episode, at the end of this scene, 3,000 are brought to faith in Christ. See, it's a new kind of harvest, a gospel harvest. But by the time of the New Testament, when this took place, Pentecost was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. So we're somewhere near late May, early June. All right, remember when did Jesus die? At the time of the Passover. And Luke tells us he spent 40 days with the apostles before his ascension into heaven. And so since I can do simple math, 
The apostles spent roughly, what, 10 days waiting to be clothed, to be empowered, to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So that's when, that's when this took place. Verse 1 also tells us who was present. It says, they were all together in one place. Now, who's, who's they? Well, if you remember from last week, right, when Peter initiated the process of, of finding Judas's replacement, we're told he, he stood up, he stood up among the brothers, and then Luke adds this kind of parenthetical statement. He says, and the company of persons was in all about 120. And so being one of the major Jewish feasts, it makes sense because who wants to celebrate alone that this group of about 120 would be together. So it's this 120 who are all together in one place. Right? And this group consisted most likely of those who had begun to follow Jesus during his ministry in Galilee. These were Galileans. And we see that more clearly, right, in verse 7, when this multitude comes together and these foreign languages are being spoken, and it's asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Right? So that's the, that's the easy part, and hopefully, hopefully you're with me. We have 120 Galileans all together in a house on the day of Pentecost, waiting for the Holy Spirit, waiting for Jesus to fulfill his promise. What comes next, this sound like a mighty rushing wind. I wish we had special effects because how cool would that be? This, it's the best I can do, right? And then we have this, we have this sound like a mighty rushing wind. We have these divided tongues of fire. This is when it begins to feel strange, unusual. What is with this language? It's strange and unusual, yes, but follow me, it is not unprecedented in Scripture. Right? These kind of, of heavenly signs, wind, fire, are used throughout Scripture to depict, they're there to represent, to tell us about God's presence, his activity. Right? Wind or, or breath is often an emblem of God's creative activity, his giving of life. Think of Think of Genesis 1. Think of Ezekiel in chapter 37. Ezekiel and that, that vision, that valley of dry bones where the spirit, the breath, swept across those bones, bringing them life. Right? Fire is just another common symbol of God's presence, often there to, to symbolize his presence to judge or to, or to purify. Right? So think about Sinai where we're told the Lord descended on the mountain in fire. Okay, so in one sense, right, we don't have anything new in verses 2 to 3. This kind of language is used elsewhere. It's common to describe God's appearance, to help us understand his, his activity, his work. So don't get bogged down trying to visualize trying to conceptualize these things. Take them to signify the Spirit's unmistakable presence. Right? 
Those in that room knew their Bible. So when these things happened, those in that room knew that their waiting was over. Right? So we have familiar biblical language, imagery, but that is not to say that something new isn't happening. Something new is taking place. If you look again at the end of verse 2, what does the sound do? The sound fills the entire house. And what about the tongues of fire? They come to rest on each one of them. We have a filling of the entire house. We have these tongues of fire resting on each person in that house. What's that telling us? Well, think, in the Old Testament, we know it's not that the Spirit is, is missing. See, Pentecost isn't the first that we, that we hear of, of the Spirit, but his presence, his work in the Old Testament were, as one author puts it, primarily given to prophets and to priests and kings to carry out their duties. I think of it this way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit's appearance, it was more like an isolated pop-up kind of rain shower. Right? Here, beginning at Pentecost, we see one of the great advantages of the age of the Spirit. The Spirit fills the entire church. And the Spirit is given individually to every member. And so post-Pentecost, those light showers are transformed into a deluge. And think about what that means. It means, at least one thing that it means, is that we don't have a hierarchy in the church. Right? Think about airlines. Right? Airlines have, have levels of status. You can be premier silver, you can be Premier gold, you can be premier platinum. Anyone want to raise their hand where you fit? No, we won't call anyone out. I'm sure there's things I've never even heard of or will hear of. Right? Not so in the church. Right? You can board at any time. If someone told you you have to get here at 1010, don't listen to that person. You can come 10 till, you can come at quarter till. You're welcome. Right? We don't have a spiritual class up here and the not-so-spiritual in the back. Right? We don't have secret rooms or special privileges for those who've collected enough spiritual points. Right? Everyone who receives Christ by faith receives the Spirit. Right? A Christian is someone who is in Christ. And to be in Christ means that you have the spirit of Christ. And so for example, right, Paul isn't speaking to a special elite group within the churches in Galatia when he says, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That is still true of all those who are in Christ by faith. We have no second class citizens in the church. We have different roles, 
Obviously, we have different ways to serve. But in the church, we have the same status. We have the same identity. We have the same access to the Father because the same Spirit fills the church. The same Spirit rests on each one of us. All were filled, verse 4 says. All were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so clearly this, this was a miraculous, unique event. Right? To spontaneously be able to speak a foreign language is unusual, uncommon. Right? Some of us, I'm sure no one in this room, have a hard enough time with English. Right? And while what happened here is, I believe, unique, it is unique, it doesn't change the underlying point. And that is Christ builds his church. Christ expands his kingdom, not through a small number of people, but he does so through all of his people. Think about it. In the Old Testament, it was the temple that preached Christ. It did so in types and shadows and prefigurements. But at the temple, majority of Israel wasn't actively involved. They were spectators. They didn't even get to see most of what happened. They were on the sidelines. But in the age of the Spirit, you see that there is a new kind of temple. There is a new dwelling place for the Spirit, where the Spirit comes to dwell in a richer and more abundant way. And that is the church. You see, we are the temple that preaches Christ. And all of us who have the Spirit are authorized to preach Christ. Never think, please don't think that the ministry of the word belongs exclusively to me and Ryan. Right? Hopefully our teaching is helping you to understand and to be able to teach others. One of my mentors said his greatest compliment when it came to his preaching and teaching is when one of his members who, who sat under his teaching for, for quite a while came up to him and said, you know, Tim, I've watched you for a while now. And you know what? I think I can do what you do. That is right. You can handle the scriptures. You can teach let the word of Christ, Paul says, dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That's an imperative. That's a command, not just given to the elders, but that is given to the entire body. And so think this morning, friends, who, who needs you? Right? Who's in a crisis? Who's discouraged? Who's suffering? Who's wayward? Because someone needs you right, to handle the Bible well and to apply it to their lives. Right? We are to teach one another. And we are called to adorn our preaching, our teaching with godliness. Right? With a way of life that actually commends 
Christ to the world. Because we can have all the knowledge, we can have all the eloquence. But if we do not adorn the gospel with a way of life that is consistent with that gospel, we have no right to be heard. So that's the first advantage we see. In this new age, the Spirit works on a grander scale, no longer limited to some with special tasks. He's given to all who will receive Christ by faith. And I think we see the next advantage, right? As as this multitude comes together, this multitude is made up, we're told, of Jews from, from other nations, And Luke doesn't literally mean every nation under heaven was represented. The point is that this multitude represents the extent of the Jewish dispersion. We know that over the centuries, Jews, oftentimes not by their own choice, were exiled. They were spread out. And so what's interesting about this list is uh, Luke begins with nations to the east. And then he moves in a counterclockwise manner, and it completes a full circle. So I think what Luke is telling us is that this is, this is comprehensive. This is meant to signify a, really a restoration. Right? And those in the West, those Jews who lived actually in the East, they would have known Aramaic. Those in the West would have known Greek. In addition to also... Right, their own native language. Isn't it amazing how much smarter we've gotten over the years? Right, and it's that language each of them hears. Right? And the surprise is that these Galileans, not known as a particularly well-educated people, are able to speak in these native tongues. Now what? We're going to learn more next week of what this means But in the background here, when we think of of languages, different languages and communications in Scripture, what do we think of? We should think of the Tower of Babel all the way back in Genesis 11, right? Where in judgment, God multiplied languages to erect necessary barriers between people. But here, notice, God doesn't erase language barriers. You think, well, I guess the Holy Spirit, he could have given them one common language, but that's not what he does. He doesn't give them a especially, you know, heavenly language that all can understand. Instead, the mighty works of God, all that God did in Christ, these mighty works are spoken about in diverse languages. You see how God redeems his curse? What was there as a curse now becomes a blessing to his glory. And this is pointing us to something. You see, in the age of the Spirit, the advantage is that the nations of the earth are to be told about the mighty works of God. Right, friends, the mission to preach Christ to the nations, to see God's glory praised in the languages of the earth. This is not a burden. But it's worth considering if that's the way that we think about it. And when you're the one who has to write sermons, that means you have to answer the questions yourself. 
And so I look over my life. I did this as I was writing this. And I thought, if someone could look into my prayers, if they could examine the use of my money, the ways that I want to spend my time, would that person know that I'm committed to seeing the nations know Christ? Friends, we all need to ask if our commitments, our priorities, our habits have anything to do with God's passion. And God's passion is to see a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before him, standing around his throne, standing before the Lamb, praising him. And if that is not our passion, the book of Acts really won't make much sense to us. So as we close, remember, right, Pentecost has brought us into the age of the Spirit. Think about what has happened. Christ has, has finished his work. Right? He's made atonement for the sins of his people. Right? He has now ascended to his heavenly throne. And from that heavenly throne, his kingdom is expanding, it is secure, and he continues to give the Holy Spirit to those who receive him in faith, who are joined to his church. Right? To receive Christ is to receive his spirit. Right? And that means that all who are truly members of the church, who've come to Christ in faith, have been baptized by the spirit. Right? We don't lose the Spirit. But, but, in the age of the Spirit, even those who've received the Spirit are continually to seek being filled with the Spirit. You see, the great advantage we have living in this age is that we can always be refreshed by the Spirit more and more. Now, if you think you've reached the end of your sanctification, you can tune me out here. But if not, understand that our lives, our lives can come under the Spirit's influence in greater degrees. Right? We, can, we can walk with him more faithfully. We can be led by him more and more. His life can come and fill us to depths we don't even fully comprehend. And that's why Paul tells the Ephesians, he tells the Ephesians, those who've already received the Spirit, they are in Christ, but he still tells them not to get drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. See, the great need of our age is the same as those waiting in that house. Right? Our need is for Christ to continually fill his church with his spirit. Now, how does that happen? What buttons do we have to push? Well, we don't control God. 
We don't coerce God. We can't cause him to pour out the Spirit in an abundantly fresh way. But I do think the Puritan Richard Sibbs had it right when he said, those ages wherein the Spirit of God is most is where Christ is most preached. Those ages wherein the Spirit of God is most is where Christ is most preached. See, our passage ends with this question, what does this mean? And the answer doesn't come until Peter stands up, and what does he do? He preaches Christ from the Scriptures. See, friends, we will not have the Spirit of God if we don't have the Christ who is revealed in this word. Having a Christ of your own imagination does us no good. We need the Christ that is given to us in these pages. And so, friends, what can we do to be filled with the Spirit? Maybe for the first time, that means coming to Christ in faith, knowing that all you bring him are your sins, and he gives you his spirit. And let me tell you, that is an exchange he is glad to make. And if you are in Christ, it means coming to him again and again and again. Jesus says the Father loves to give the spirit to those who ask. Look over your prayer life. Are you asking for the Spirit to fill you? Are you asking for the Spirit to come and fill to the ends of the earth? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who is exalted at the right hand of the Father. You rule all things. You can do all that you please. And we ask that it would please you to fill us with your spirit. Maybe for the first time this morning or in a deeper way that our lives would grow in holiness that we would walk in the paths of truth to the glory and to the praise of your name. Amen.